Bibles to the book of James, chapter 4. What does the scripture say to us? Let us read chapter 4 of the book of James, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war with you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship, the world, is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, our great God and King, full of all glory and honor and praise and majesty, to you, O Lord, are due all the praise of men, O Lord, we utterly fail to give you your due. And Lord, we obscure your glory with the filthiness of our own pride and selfishness. We thank you, Lord, that with you there is grace. And we thank you, O Lord, that you do not count iniquity against us, lest any of us could stand. But, O Lord, we pray now that as we come under the teaching of your word, that our hearts may be teachable, that our minds may understand, and that humility may bubble forth from the fruit of the Spirit, and that may we receive what we hear today for your glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We're living in tumultuous times, and in these tumultuous times, oh yes, pardon me, in these tumultuous times we're living in, it it almost seems as if nothing surprises me anymore. While we see all the hypersexuality expressed in the modern culture that seems to just reek of Sodom and Gomorrah, we also are living in very violent times. As I said before the message, seeing the war develop in Israel clearly is just another expression of the violence that seems to be pouring out in every sphere of the world, whether it's Ukraine and Russia, or whether it's Israel and Palestine, or whether it's China and ready to invade Taiwan. And right here at home, we have our own cold civil war. Our political parties have pulled so far to both sides, that there is no more chance for any compromise or agreement. 
We have just torn each other apart as a nation. And one wonders when you see all this, how does the church reflect it? How do we come into play in all this? And, and what light do we shine or what expression of goodness do we contrast ourselves with with the world? And sadly and unfortunately, the church is no better. When we look at the church, we see a lot of conflict. We see a lot of division and a lot of problems. At the core of it all is really pride and humility. You know, when you have pride in the heart, there's going to be conflict and there's going to be difficulty. And when there's humility, there is going to be peace. And unfortunately, as members of the human race, pride is our natural disposition. We were born from the womb to be proud individuals. We are, as it says in the scripture, Psalm 73, 6, pride is our necklace and we clothe ourselves with violence. You don't have to teach children how to be proud. It comes very easily. Humility is a virtue that can only be wrought by the Holy Spirit, as we said in our confessional reading. Humility is the natural disposition of a person whose heart has been changed and who has been humbled before God through the gospel. And so as I go into this sermon, I want to isolate the one verse, verse 6, and that is, that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And I think that this is very important to just see this statement, which we've heard so many times, and really sort of think about what that means. It, 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 there's two things. It said, if you're a proud person, how you relate to God, and how you're a humble person, you relate to God. If pride is defining your character, and if pride is the pattern in which you live in your life, it says that God will oppose you. God will become your enemy. God will work against you. God will thwart you. God will not bless you. Pride is, in a sense, the mother of all sins. Why? It is the posture of the ungodly. Pride is boastful and arrogant, and what it does is seek to usurp God and put self on the throne where God belongs. Pride was the, the sin that brought Satan from heaven to hell, before Satan uh, was Satan, he was Lucifer. And in his own pride and the arrogance of his own heart, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 tell us that he exalted himself above God. He said, "He, I will ascend to heaven and I will be like God. And, and in the, his own pride and vanity of his beauty and his, his abilities, he exalted himself against God and convinced a third of heaven to follow him. Satan was cast down. Pride was at the core of the sin in Eden. At the fall, what was at the root of it? It was pride. It was pride that says, no, God, we won't listen to you. We'll be the captain of our own fate. We'll decide what's good and evil. We're going to take that forbidden fruit because even though you've given us everything else, it's not enough. We want more. We want to be like you. We will determine right from wrong, good and evil. You can't tell us what to do. That was the first strike of sin, and it has been in the heart of every human being since the fall. At the core of pride is rebellion and defiance against God, and that is why pride is the mother of all sin. On the other hand, humility is the virtue by which most resembles who God is, and it says God gives grace to the humble. 
Grace is the favor of God. We know that the grace of God is given to us through the gospel in Jesus Christ. And if we're recipients of the grace of God and salvation, then we are overflowing with grace. Grace is what we want. We want God's favor. We want his, his kindness. We want him to look at us with favor and bless us and, and help us along our way in life. In fact, so many proverbs and tell us in different areas of scripture tell us about how God distinguishes and how he deals with the proud and the humble. Proverbs 3.34, towards the scorners he's scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 29.23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Luke 14.11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exhausted, exalted. With that said, what I really want to do today is stress the importance of cultivating humility in our lives. If there's anything we need more than anything in developing in our Christian growth, it's humility. You cannot grow in the fruit of the Spirit. You cannot grow as a Christian. You cannot grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And all the Bible knowledge in the world will do you no good if there's no humility. Why? Because humility is at the core of who Jesus is. If you want to know Christ-likeness and you want to know godliness, then humility is the ultimate expression of of being like Christ. Why? What does it say in Scripture? Well, let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, he emptied himself, and he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When you look to Christ, you see the perfect expression of humility. For Christ to condescend to this world, to become a human being, to take on the flesh of a man and to live in a human body is, is in itself degrading in a way that we can't even understand. The king of the universe, the creator, to become one with his creation to become a lump of clay, to, to, uh, to with, withstand all the elements of life and the emotions of life. and to, uh, it, You cannot even imagine the one who received the praise of angels to then come down to this world and be spit on by his creatures. The one who, who can command the wind and the wave and, and who can uh, uh, create something out of nothing who called all into existence to have human beings take, make a cross of the very wood that he created and nail him to that tree. Nothing could be more humiliating. Christ humbled himself. Perhaps this is why Augustine said humility is the first, the second, and the third part of godliness. On the other hand, wherever pride exists, it's like a poisonous weed. It chokes out the life of the spirit in our lives. It is antithetical to spiritual growth and antithetical to God. 
It's the attitude of the unconverted and the human nature and ultimately of the devil. Just as pride originated with Satan and through the fall, we realize that whenever pride exists, Satan is on the throne. Wherever pride is manifesting itself, Satan is ruling. And that's why we see our society the way it is. You know what the symptom Well, you know what the disease is in our country today? It's sin. But what we really see destroying the United States of America is the arrogance and pride of man. Our whole political system is basically crumbling. Satan rejoices as he watches man tear man apart in our political system. It's pride. It's all pride. You see, pride makes you intoxicated with yourself. In order to put self to death, we must pursue humility. All right, let's look at a few things. There are three aspects I want to look at today. That is number one, being humble before God, being humble with ourselves, and being humble with others. Three aspects of humility. Number one, in order to truly cultivate humility, we need to be humble before God. If God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, we want to be on the right side of God's in this equation. To be proud is to invite God to oppose you and you're not going to achieve anything or grow if you have God opposing you. And so there are two main aspects of how we relate to God and cultivating humility I want to look at. And that is number one is our view of God himself and our view of his word. And number one is humility to relating to God himself. When we think about God, your view of God and your understanding of God will determine your view of yourself. If you have a big God of a big view of God, you will have a small view of self. If you have a big view of yourself, you will have a small view of God. We have to have a bigger, a, a much more enlarged vision of who God is. That vision must capture everything the Bible says about him and all that nature says about him. And we must embrace the bigness of God. And when you embrace the bigness of God, the natural result is it will diminish any pride in our being. A.W. Tozer once said, a right conception of God is not only basic to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple, Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later fall apart. He goes on to say, there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. We must realize that God is God and we are not. There's one word that I believe sums up the bigness of God. Because it's kind of hard, right? There's a lot of words that describe God in the Bible. But if there's one word that describes the bigness of God, it's the word majesty. It's a word that we don't use too often because our British forefathers, um, we fought a war with them over that word majesty. And so we live in America. We live in the land of, of, of democratic republic and presidents and congressmen. But if you live in England and you are a British national, there is still something to be said about royalty. When the Queen passed away uh, last year, it was a big deal. When Charles was coronated king, it was a big deal. And when you speak to the king and you speak to the queen, you say, Your Majesty. It's a recognition that 
The royal family is big. They're bigger than you. They're bigger than England. They are, they are England. It's a, and it's a tradition that goes back for centuries. And although England still has a democratic system of government, there is a sense where there is a sense of awe and there is a sense of, of just, just uh, uh, appreciation and value and, 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 and an awesomeness to the majesty of the king and the queen. And when we see that word, it's also used in the Bible often to describe God. Psalm 8.1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. And I love that because shortly later he said, what is my man that you're mindful of? You made the heavens and, and the stars of the heaven and the earth. And, and, and what, who are we? Have you ever taken a moment to look at the heavens? Did you ever go out on a really dark night? Uh, my daughters see it when they go to New Hampshire. There's no lights out there. You could see the, the rings of the Milky Way galaxy. You could see for billions of light years just stars and clusters and galaxies. And I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, <gasps> I, couldn't, I couldn't catch my breath because I realized how little I was. I realized I was tiny. I was a microcosmic dust. I was nothing all my pride was evaporated in a second when I realized how little I am, and yet God's glory is above the heavens. His name is majestic. God is bigger than all of that. You know, we sing in our, nas uh, you know, in our national songs, Purple Mountain Majesties. Uh, I've been in Colorado. I've seen those purple, mountain, uh, the, uh, purple mountains that they describe in the song. And I can tell you something. There is something majestic. When I'm at the foot of a 14,000 foot mountain or I am on the peak of it, you feel very small. You feel infinitesimally small in the grand scheme of things. The mountains are majestic and yet God is bigger than that. Psalm 76, 4, glorious are you, O Lord, more majestic than the mountains full of prey, the psalmist says. And so majesty brings both together greatness and goodness, strength and beauty. It is the only appropriate descriptor of God, which is why Isaiah 10.34 refers to God as the majestic one. Listen to 1 Chronicles 29.10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. Listen to this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. If our hearts can pray and think like that, pride will not exist in our lives. Nebuchadnezzar learned it the hard way. The king of Babylon looked out at his kingdom one day and he, he puffed up his chest. He said, look what I've done. Look at all that I've achieved. He felt good about himself. Shortly later, God reduced him to the mind of an animal clawing at the grass for seven years with 
living like a beast of the field. When he came to his senses, he said, it is God who rules over all. It is God who gives. It is God who takes away. It is God who raises up. It is God who brings low. When we understand who God is, we have an understanding of his sovereignty, his power, his majesty, his holiness, his righteousness. We can do nothing but fall to our knees. When Isaiah saw the glory of Jehovah, he buckled at his knees and said, woe is me, I'm undone. The reason why we get filled with pride and we're not humble we don't go before the throne of Jehovah and see how big he is often enough. If we truly came before the throne of the Lord God and understood who he was, it would break us. Unless we have a right concept of who God is, we will never be humble. Secondly, our attitude towards his word, natural revelation isn't enough. If we're going to truly be humble people, we have to be humble before his word. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2, that God looks upon the person who fears and trembles at his word. You see, God speaks to us through his word, and his word is powerful, and his word is sure, and his word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And I got to tell you, it's not just merely a book of of systematic theology. Systematic theology is a result of the Bible. The Bible is, has a clear message for us. It tells us who we are. It tells us who God is. and tells us what's right and wrong. And our attitude about the Bible is going to reflect in ourselves. If we come to the Bible with a judgmental heart, well, I don't know if I agree with that, and I don't see it that way, and well, that was written for then, and this is not for now. If we're always trying to pick apart and dissect and 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 and. You see, what happens is so many people read the Bible and they interpret it to fit their own worldview instead of letting the Bible shape their worldview. We come in with our own ideas, our own presuppositions, and then we just look for proof texts to fulfill what we want to believe. That's not a proper way that we hum before the Word of God. And so what we have to understand is that our attitude towards God is directly reflected in our attitude towards the Bible. And so the first thing is to be humble before God. The second point of the sermon is that we have to have a right view of self, right? How we relate to ourselves. You see, if we have a right view of God, we're going to have a good view of ourselves. You have to start with God. And now we look at ourselves. And if we have a right view of selves, we will not be proud. You see, pride is so deceitful. You know, when you're, guess, guess what? When, if you're proud, you don't know it. Proud people think they're humble all the time. The proud person never sees their pride. I don't see my pride. You know how I see my pride? When other people tell me I'm proud. And even then I don't believe it. Because you know why? I'm blinded. Pride blinds you. The Bible says, pick the plank out of your own eye before you pick the speck out of your brother's eye because then your eye you'll be able to see better and pick the speck. It's not saying that the speck shouldn't be removed. It's saying you've got a big plank sticking in your eye. You can't see too good. Pride is self-deception. Pride constructs a false view of self in defiance of the facts. Our view of ourselves is about as distorted as going into the house of mirrors at the carnival. You ever go into the house of mirrors and you look at yourself and it's all wibbly wobbly and you're like, whoa, this is weird. That's how accurate our view of ourself is. 
Our self-assessment is distorted. Pride always sees oneself in a positive light while seeing everyone else in a negative light. Pride blames problems on others but can never see their own sin. We'll never see our need for change and if we do, there's no urgency because it's always the other who needs to change first. William Farley says this, here is the great paradox. The proud man thinks he's humble, but the humble man thinks he's proud. The humble man sees his arrogance. He sees it clearly, and as a result, he aggressively pursues a life of humility. But he doesn't think of himself as humble. But the proud man is completely unaware of his pride. Of all men, he is the most convinced that he is humble. The Bible often uses the term puffed up to describe someone who is proud, that is, they have an overinflated view of themselves. People that are puffed up have big egos. And people with big egos like to be around other people who stroke their egos. So when that ego is popped, that is when humility comes in. There are three aspects here to understanding how we relate to God and humility. Number one is with salvation. It's not until you understand the gospel and you understand that we are sinners who are absolutely worthless and who are absolutely destitute, morally bankrupt, filthy, rotten pigs that deserve nothing but God's judgment that we could truly understand who we are before the Lord. We did not bring ourselves to God. We did not achieve salvation. God saved you. He saved me. We were like the, the, the prodigal son wallowing in the mire of our sin and content in it. And it wasn't until Christ picked us up and removed us out and washed us and cleaned us and said, I am going to make you my child. I preached on this a couple of weeks ago. We came from nothing. How can we boast? We're all nobodies. We're sinners saved by grace and the most important way we find humility is through the gospel of jesus christ we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day we need to remind ourselves of the gospel we need to look at the cross of christ and see christ hanging there dying for our sins and see how our sins put him there then we could say like paul in galatians 6 14 far be for me to boast in anything save but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul could have boasted about his merits. He had reason to. But he was simply amazed at how God's grace could have touched him. How could God save such a wretch? If we could sing that song, Amazing Grace, that God saved a wretch like me and realize we truly are wretches, then truly we will understand humility. Humility recognizes also that we are, everything we are is a result of God's grace. I talked about Nebuchadnezzar before. We must be reminded of the fact, as Isaiah 26, 12 says, Lord, all that we have done, you have accomplished for us. So anything else in this life, apart from your salvation that you've achieved, who are we to boast? Everything comes from the hand of God. There is nothing that we do, there is nothing that we say, any advantages, any achievements, any success is because of the grace of God. You see, it takes a very humble person that when you do achieve something, when you do succeed at something, to acknowledge the Lord in it. 
And when I talk about that, I talk about a heart understanding. Many a man will say, oh, God did it. It's all God. But inwardly, they stroke their egos and say, I did it. I don't care what you say outwardly. What matters is what you understand in your heart. God cares, I should say. God looks at the heart. Many a man is good at putting on a pretense of false humility. Humility is essentially devoid of self. That's what humility is. Humility is when we have a proper view of self and God, it will cultivate and result in a reality that self no longer sits on the throne of our life. Humility is not thinking low of yourself, right? I'm a horrible person. I'm a worm. I'm a disgusting sinner. And I've been around certain Christians. I remember one time I was in Colorado and I met a man who... He was, he was what they call the worm Christian, right? I'm a worm, I'm a worm, I'm a dirty worm. And, and so I went up to him, I, I heard about him, and I met him, and I said, oh, pleasure to meet you. He goes, really? It's a pleasure to meet me? <laughs> like, and, and it may sound very spiritual. Maybe there's emotional and, and, and insecurity issues that the man's dealing with, but it's not spiritual. True humility is when you live life in such a way where where you're not always putting yourself at the center of everything. It's not about your feelings or your, what you want and uh, no one considered me and what about me and where do I fit into this equation? That's pride. Pride is when you're always putting yourself in relation to everything that's going on to see. And you know, you know how you know we're proud and we're selfish people? Whenever there's a group photograph, what's the first, who's the first person you zero in on in that picture? Yourself. How do I look in that picture? It's never about how the other people look. How do I look? Tim Keller says this, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. That's the freedom then of self-forgetness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetness brings. You want to truly grow in humility? Forget about yourself. It's liberating. It is slavery when yourself is at the center of it all. C.S. Lewis says this, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from the meeting thinking they're truly humble. They would not always be telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from the meeting, a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself, it's thinking less of myself and thinking of myself less. You see, pride always manifests in boastful arrogance. You know, you could see a proud person a mile away because they always brag about what they do. They pride themselves on their self-righteousness. They pride themselves on legalism, excessive piety, and they do so looking at condescension with those who don't live up to what they think is biblical. Matthew 6, Jesus tears the mask off the Pharisees. He says, you fast and you distort your faces and you pray so everyone could hear you. 
and you give and you want everybody to know what you're doing. You know why? Because you're doing it for men. You're not doing it for God. You have your reward. If all you're doing is putting on a show to impress people with how spiritual you are, it's a lie. It's, it's all comes from pride. Tim Challey says this, a humble person thinks better of others than himself because he can see his own heart and the sin that lurks there better than he can see the heart of any other person. Though he knows the extent of his own depravity, he assumes the best of others. While he searches himself for every vestige of sin, he searches everyone else for every vestige of grace. Thirdly, thirdly, humility in how we relate to others. All right, so if we, we have a proper view of ourselves and a proper view of God, the natural result is you're going to have a good relationship with other people. It doesn't mean you're always going to get along with people. It doesn't mean you're going to have disagreements. But you're going to be better able to handle disagreements and better able to handle differences. And you're going to be able to get along better with people. Humility is the key to this. And if we all grow in humility, I'll tell you, it'll bless your relationships at home. It'll bless your relationships with your family, your husbands, your wives, your children, your, your, your brothers, your sisters, your church People at work, humility is the key to building successful relationships. Pride destroys relationships. So I want to talk about three ways we can express humility in the way we relate to other people. The number one is submission. Oh, that's a yucky word. Nobody likes that word. But it's biblical. It's in the Bible and it's repeated several times. Ephesians 5.21 lays out the standard, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence to Christ. Right? This goes back to Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves that's in Christ. Right? Do not just think about yourself, but count the interests of others ahead of your own. Think about other people. That's what submissing it is. It's yielding to others. It, it's, it's, there's times where you'll have to take a stand. There's times where you have to dig your heels in on important issues. But on the everyday matters of life, you don't always have to get your way. Pride always wants to get, get their way. Humility knows when, what battles to pick. Humility says, I don't really care. You want to do this? Let's do that. Humility gives in. Humility says, you want to sit here? Sit here. You want to, you want to go here? We'll go here. Pride says, no, we got to do it this way. No, I, I'm not going there. I'm going here. Pride always wants to get their way. You see, at the end of the day, submission is really about teachableness. It's about, it's about being able to be taught, be corrected. It's about having a heart that can understand and learn. Proud people are never wrong. Proud people, even when they're wrong, they're right. That's why it says never argue with a proud person. Why? They'll just rage and laugh at you. Family life is the number one part where we see submission. So failed so many times, but Ephesians 5.21, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And in Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents, for it is good for you to do so. And so, you know, we see the first aspect. The family is the center of society, the foundation of society. And when the family life is warped, everything's warped. Not everything falls apart. Wives are to be submissive to their husbands. Wives are to to listen to their husbands and, and, and trust them and give, let them lead their families. When wives are always contradicting and arguing with their, their husbands, they can't allow them to lead. And when that happens, the children follow suit. 
And children rebel and children resist and children disobey. And then you have disorder. Church life, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls and those who will, who will hear give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Just as the family life doesn't benefit when there's a lack of order, there's a lack of, 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 of submission, we see it's the same thing in the churches. There's order. There's God appoints elders and deacons to lead the churches. And, and the church has a responsibility to submit to those in leadership, to allow them to lead. And when we have nothing but contradiction and argument and subversion, it's impossible to lead. Let your leaders do so with joy, not with groaning. That will be of no advantage to you. And then finally, civil government. Romans 13, 1 through 2. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Look at our society. We're in chaos. People have no respect for officers of the law no more. We have no respect for... I was just reading this recently about all the professions that where people trust or have respect, right? And, and law officer, everybody in authority is on the low bottom of the barrel. Law officers, teachers, pastors. We live in a society filled with disrespect. We live in a society where, where, where basically if you're an authority, we're going to thumb our nose at you. We're going to protest. We're going we're gonna to burn the, the, through the streets and we're going to riot. If we don't get what we want, we're going to go crazy. That's our culture. I don't get what I want in Congress. I'm going to vote out the speaker and I don't care if all burns down. That's the society we live in. Everybody's got their own selfish agenda and they will burn it all down if they can't get their way. That's not from God. That's from the devil. Palestinian says, we don't like the way the Israelis treated us. We're going to burn it all down. It's of the devil. God is a God of order. He's the one with ultimate authority and he gives Governing authorities, authority. All authority comes from God. Anyone who's in a position of authority has been placed there by God. When we resist, we find ourselves fighting against God himself. And guess what? You will not be blessed. You will not be blessed in your home. You will not be blessed in the church. You will not be blessed in society. If you revolt and resist those who are placed in authority, it will come back to you. You see, that's what the beautiful thing is. Our testimony and witness to an unbelieving world is that we are submissive people. We're not like them. We're to be different. We're to be peaceful people. Peaceful people are submissive people. They're teachable. They're humble. The second point, the second aspect of how we relate to one another in humility is service. It's serving others. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to this world not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Serving is at the core of humility. Cultivating humility means serving people. Jesus lived his whole life serving, healing, teaching, uh, washing the disciples' feet, laying down his life ultimately at the cross. There are two kinds of people in this world. There are givers and there are takers. There are people who spend their whole life taking 
It says in Proverbs 30 there, you know, the leech, the leech has two daughters, give and give more. There are a lot of leeches in this world. They just take, and they take, and they take, and they have high expectations and high demands on everyone. I want this, and I demand this, and I expect that. When you go through life demanding and expecting and always trying to get people to bend to your will and do what you want, that's pride. Humility is when we are willing to bend to the will of others, to serve others, to exalt others, to make other people feel good. How can I serve you? Years ago, in Grace and Truth, I remember we went through a period where we were going through this humility, pride, Bible study, and Sarah Garofalo, who was a member of our church, we were reading through um, uh, Humility by C.J. Mahaney, and one of the things and catchphrases at the time was, was to go up to people and say, how can I serve you? Sarah Garofalo was, was the best at this. She would come up to everybody, grace and truth, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? How can, and Sarah would serve. Sarah, if you said you needed a favor, she would do it. If you said, can you pray with me? She would do it. Sarah's now the wife of a pastor. She's, they're doing great out there, her and Damien. But I, Sarah was, was just a blessing to us at that time in that she always looked for ways to serve. How can I serve you? Not how can I be served. Ultimately, whatever service we do, it's in the strength of God, isn't it? Again, that could be that could be grounds for boasting. This is the this is the, the funny thing with, with pride and humility. It's so easy to fall into pride. Well, I'm serving, look how much I'm doing. And pride and boasting could come into the equation. One of the most one of the most harmful things is that when Christians do serve a lot in the church, they get upset because they see others not pulling their weight. Right? And you ever see that expression, 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work? That tends to be true in just about every church. And so what happens is the people who are serving look with contempt on the others that aren't, where are you? How come you're not doing what I'm doing? You've lost focus. 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. It's always about other people. It's never about you. As good stewards of God's very grace. And notice what it says, as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. It's about God. It's never about us. And finally, and how we relate to others, we cultivate humility by honoring others more than we honor ourselves. See, at the, at the center of pride is we seek honor and praise unto self. This is why I personally know Christian could ever be a politician. Right? I, I think it, it's categorically impossible. I, I think it's an oxymoron to say a Christian politician. How could you be in politics? The whole basis of politics is to brag about yourself. Right? Being a politician is telling everybody, I'm so good at what I do, and you should vote for me because I'm the best. I, how could a Christian do that in good conscience? And anybody who's humble will never win an election. How can you honor others more than yourselves and serve people and be a politician? You can't. And that's why they say 99% of politicians are narcissists. You have to be one. Pride at its core seeks honor and praise unto self. And there's nothing worse when we don't get the praise we think we deserve. I remember years ago, I went through a situation in life where I didn't get the praise I thought I deserved and I got very upset about it. And it wasn't until I truly humbled myself before God and accepted where I was at, and I was free. 
Romans 12.10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. It means that we don't look to eclipse others by getting the spotlight ourselves. We eclipse ourselves to put others in the spotlight. It means we don't get upset when others get more honor than we do, whether it's a promotion at work or, or your child is overlooked or, or, or whether you don't get uh, the recognition you think you deserve. A humble Christian is willing always and wants others to get the honor and glory and never is angry and bitter. It means that we, we don't seek the place of honor either. Matthew 23, 6, when, when Jesus eviscerated the Pharisees, he said, they love the place of honor at your feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Turn with me to Luke 14. I'm going to be preaching through Luke next, and I'm very excited about that because there's so much in there. Look at Luke 14, verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, and he noticed how they chose the places of honor. And said to them, all right, so he sees the people, he sees the Pharisees in the crowd, and they're all choosing the most honorable places, best seats in the house. And he says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by them. And he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when you your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Galatians 6.3 said, If anyone thinks he's something when nothing, he deceives himself. Let me conclude. This is, this is one of those sermons where and every one of us from pulpit to pew we've just been as Paul would say stripped naked by the word of God and if we're honest with ourselves and that's what humility really is it's being honest with yourself stop deceiving ourselves pride is deceiving ourselves humility is being honest with yourself if you're honest with yourself Look to God and see how big he is, how little you are. Be reminded of that. Be reminded of the fact that because of the gospel, because of God's grace, that he didn't leave us wallowing in our sin, destined to hell, but he rescued us, delivered us, and set us free. Be mindful of the fact that because of the Holy Spirit in you, you do what you do. Don't look to others and compare yourselves and say, well, I'm better than him and I'm better than her. Look to Christ. You want to compare yourselves to anyone? If I want to compare myself to anyone, we compare ourselves to Jesus. Because when we do that, there's no room for pride. We all fall short. I pray that this sermon would trickle into our hearts and God's word would do its work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you once again for this time together. Lord, once again we pray for Israel. 
We pray for those in that nation who have been absolutely um, terrorized and ambushed and attacked just like we were at 9-11. I pray that if anything, this would be a time where the Jewish people would, would look to you, Jesus. We know that one day they will all know that you are the Messiah. But oh, bring revival to Israel. May they realize that their leaders can't save them. Their military can't save them. It is only you, Christ, who could save them. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would indeed intervene. We pray that you would protect them. But we pray, O oh Lord, may salvation abound in the land of Israel. Father, I pray for all of us here today. Humble us before your word. And for those of us who will not be humble, I pray that you would humble us, that you would do whatever it takes, that no one may boast in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand as we sing one last time.